Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 292, an interview with Rolf Hellebust, author of How Russian Literature Became Great. Today we have a special guest joining us on the podcast. Rolf Hellebust is a UK-based scholar currently working with the Brilliant Club University Access Charity. He is senior editor of the journal Canadian Slavonic Papers. He's also the author of How Russian Literature Became Great, coming out on January 15th, 2024, from Cornell University Press. Welcome to the podcast. And thank you very, very much for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I think the first thing we're going to ask you is, what is the book about? Uh, yes, apologies beforehand for the uh, the sweeping, presumptuous uh, title, if uh, if not altogether problematic. I remember that uh, one of the editors at an American university press where I was shopping the manuscript basically told me, you can't use that adjective post-Trump. Uh, you know, like we couldn't use irony after 9-11. And of course, it's it's the great one that I'm, I'm talking about. Maybe we'll come back to that later. But in any case, uh, what I have in mind in this book is it's not all of Russian literature. It is the 19th century classics, uh, what we uh, are most familiar with uh, in the West, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Tolstoyevsky, and, and so on. Uh, though I'm not interested in any one of them by themselves only in the larger phenomenon of a national literary tradition, and not just as a canon of works and authors, but as a cultural meta-narrative, if you will. And you know that this whole idea of tradition is something very weird, some, something we talk about casually or, or anxiously, usually only so we can express a particular political attitude towards it without ever thinking what it actually means. And this is especially when we're talking about something like a modern literary tradition, something that's really, it's an anti-tradition, or it's its the myth of a tradition, as, as I think I, I put it someplace in the book. Um, and it's got all this emphasis, this post-romantic emphasis on writers being original, being rebels, which is really very different from tradition in the traditional anthropological sense, you know, the ways of the tribe being handed down unchanged from generation to generation. So in broader terms, what I want to do here is ask just what it is we have in mind when we write about literary tradition and how this category functions within culture as a whole, Russian or otherwise. Where does it exist? How does it communicate its values, manifest its essential unity? What is a tradition considered as a cultural construct rather than merely the canonized sum of the contributions of individual writers? And in light of the expectations placed on literature in a given era. Um, and by the way, all these questions, of course, ultimately have to do with the whole contemporary culture wars thing, to the extent that that's not just a construct of mass media. And more specifically, I want to look at 19th century Russia as an extreme case of nation building, uh, nation building as the building of a national literary tradition, uh, extreme because of the perceived thematic unity of the whole thing, and the real temporal compactness, the fact that it was only really not just a century, but half a century in the 19th century from the time of the national poet Alexander Pushkin uh, to these big culminating novels like Dostoevsky's final novel, The Brothers Karamazov. So I'm talking around 1830 to 18. 
80. All these people knew one another more or less and riffed off one another. And before this half century, it was fashionable to complain that the country was bereft of literature altogether. And afterwards, no one in the world could have any doubts on this score. That's fascinating when we uh, covered Pushkin and his uh, problems with Nicholas I and, you know, having the uh, the censorship of their ideas. It was uh, quite fascinating uh, when we covered him. And we've covered Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and uh, some of the other great uh, authors of the 19th century. It was so incredibly uh, different. It, it built so much from the from Pushkin's time on. And trying to go behind that, you didn't see very much in Russian literature. Uh, really importantly, is what led you to write about this topic? Uh, well, the whole topic, I, I, everything in Russian literature interests me. Uh, 20th century, I, I wrote a book on that uh, previously, also with uh, Cornell. Uh, 19th century, even uh, the Middle Ages to an extent. But this whole topic, in, in the way that I approach it, I actually started thinking about it many decades ago as, as an undergraduate at the University of Toronto, uh, where I went to study astrophysics. And, and for reasons that I shall never fully explain to myself, I decided to switch to comparative literature uh, halfway through. And that was followed by an MA and a PhD that focused more purely on Russian. Uh, and so I liked a lot of national literatures. Um, I did have a practical reason for continuing with Russian because I'd started learning the language to read the uh, Soviet astronomy and physics journals. But uh, no you know, personal connection or preference to Russian culture uh, over any other. So I, I felt this ongoing pressure to justify my, my own choice to myself. And, and rather than focus on just the readers, the, the authors I'd read and liked, um, you know, and, and to go on with them, I wanted to take a more sort of abstract scientific approach, uh, being a refugee from the hard sciences. So um, I asked myself, what is this cultural phenomenon called Russian literature as a whole? What principles of celestial mechanics, as it were, underlies the arrangement of, of its constellations? And, and to begin with, how does the national culture itself present its literature as something special, something worthy of my attention in comparison to all the others? And of course, any first year undergraduate student of these 19th century classics will know the answer because Russian culture never tires of explaining to us. And so I start off my book with this whole series of quotes from the writers, the critics, historians, politicians from the 19th century down to the present day, who all assure us, in the words of the nation's most influential literary critic, Vissarion Bilinsky, that Russian readers, quote, see in Russian writers their only leaders, defenders, and saviors, unquote. So this idea of literature's special function, not only in formulating national identity, but in revealing national destiny. It's, it's really one of the foundations of modern Russian culture. Mind you, this literature centrism, as the Russians call it, it's, it's not actually unique to Russia. We see versions of it across the European continent in the wake of European Romanticism, German Romanticism in particular, and idealism, going back all the way to the philosopher Herder, who raised the poet, the dichter, to the status of creator of a nation around himself. And that's quoting again. 
In particular, you can see it in Central Eastern Europe, in places like Poland and Hungary, where um, faith in literature is it's not merely quasi-religious in the 19th century, it's political. Uh, so we always have to be aware of claims of exceptionalism, whether in the 19th century or today. This is an area in which Russia definitely does not yield first place to, say, the United States. Uh, nevertheless, the claims for exceptionality are themselves real and have echoed from various ideological and cultural angles through the better part of two centuries, right down to the present, despite the post-Soviet, the post-1991 crisis of faith in writing centrality and this drive beyond its borders, of course, to the destabilization of canons. Uh, so, for example, uh, I read a study aid for university applicants uh, in recent years, and quoting from that, in truth, no literature in the world has realized its prophetic mission like that of Russia. And let me give you one more quote. In the tradition of tsars and tyrants before him, Vladimir Putin himself takes pains to acknowledge the significance of the nation's greatest cultural institution. And here's a lovely example of his literary style. It is precisely we who, without exaggeration, bear a responsibility before all of civilization for preserving Russian literature, for sustaining its colossal humanistic potential. Our task is to draw society's attention to our national literature, to make Russian literature and the Russian language powerful factors in Russia's global ideological influence. And I'll leave you with that one. Well, that is very profound, especially, you know, given the present day situation in Russia and Ukraine. Ter terrifyingly profound, yes. Yeah, that's one of the, uh, you know, concerns that we have, uh, you know, this Russian exceptionalism that uh, Putin is carrying to a very high degree today. Uh, your book title, How Russian Literature Became Great, what exactly do you mean by greatness? Uh well, as I think I mentioned already, really the key term is is tradition. That's the key concept. Uh, although, of course, one is often defined in terms of the other. But uh, you know, probably you might have guessed already that greatness, as I refer to it in my title, it's a matter of perception rather than of measuring actual, say, aesthetic merit or or quantifying literature's actual power to change Russian reality as all the critics and writers in the 19th century seem to hope it would. Uh, so again, it's a matter of faith. It does, greatness, have to do with the insistence that the Russian tradition is one integral thematic whole, uh, since, as has been observed, the, quote, idea of greatness as a rule is bound up with the element of unity. That's quoting from one of the scholars in my book. Uh, but beyond this, to be great is, is mainly to insist on one's greatness and to have folks believe it. Uh, in the book, I look at uh, one concrete example from Russian literature, and this probably is the go-to answer for critics who would be pressed at gunpoint for evidence of Nikolai Gogol's genius. Uh, it's the Troika passage at the end of his novel Dead Souls, the most famous work of Russian literature ever written by a Ukrainian. Uh, its topic is the greatness, or I should say potential greatness, of Russia. Uh, through the development of which the author also demonstrates his own artistic eminence and that of his novel. So you have this troika carrying our hero 
through the Russian countryside and out of the pages of the novel, and its impetuous motion of this three-horse carriage through the Russian countryside, it becomes, of course, metaphorical. It becomes the entire nation's progress into the unknown, all inspired by God, as the narrator uh, tells us. Uh, and Gogol's narrator convinces us there is a destination for this carriage, and it is one of epic significance, but he gives us no glimpse, no clue, as his narration culminates in a series of rhetorical questions, like stones into a bottomless well. Russia, whither do you speed? Give an answer. It gives no answer, quote, unquote. So greatness is an empty concept that only starts to mean something when we think about it in terms such as those I'm using to describe the classical literary tradition as a quasi-religious mystery embracing the beautiful and the good along with the crucial sense of this Hegelian organic whole. But there's one more thing though, uh, just as so many protagonists of Dostoevsky or Gancharov, his hero Oblomov, for example, uh, can see themselves only as heroes or zeros uh, in this you know, extreme way. So Russian literature, to recall a line from one of my favorite 20th century Russian writers, Andrei Bitov, can only be either great or terrible. And this is the literature that reflects and prophesizes the nation. About this nation we hear with increasing frequency in recent years, especially the last couple, uh, from politicians and the patriotic Russian media, uh, the platitude that, again, Russia can only be great or be nothing. And one more example from a uh, 2017 textbook for post-secondary students in Russia. Russia is in truth a great nation. More precisely, it can only be great or not be at all. One absolutely must take this into consideration. It constitutes the fundamental framework of our political being. Uh, the, the appeal here, of course, is to bygone glory before 1991, before 1917, when Russia was an empire or an anti-empire. And this whole question of national identity, of Russian national identity by itself, was suspended. Uh, Nevertheless, we cannot imagine a make Russia great again formulation. It can only have ever been great. The real problem is a refusal from some quarters to accept this truth, as indicated by the need to repeat it so often. Uh, and so any threat to Russia's greatness is already an existential threat, which is a bit scary. Um, and by the way, I should also mention in terms of Russian exceptionalism, since you were uh, um, saying something yourself about this, this great or nothing commonplace, uh, Russians have linked it to Peter the Great, uh, but the most obvious uh, recent source is foreign, uh, as we're no longer surprised to learn with regard to declarations of Russian exceptionality. And it was Charles de Gaulle, the great uh, French patriot, who said, uh, in my opinion, uh, France cannot be France sans la grandeur, without its greatness. And, and finally, without going any further beyond my area of expertise, which would uh, include weighing in on the whole cancel Russian culture debate that is uh, going on right now, I could just say that by emphasizing Russians' continuing eagerness to fill the empty ideological vessel of its political greatness with cultural content, 
especially that of this great 19th century literary tradition, in a way that may strike outsiders as improbably old-fashioned. And again, I recall the quotation from Putin on literature's global ideological influence. Can you imagine, for example, the American president talking about, I don't know, Mark Twain or Emily Dickinson or Herman Melville uh, in a foreign policy context? Uh, though again, in Russia, it's not just individual books that are important. It's the sense of the whole tradition along with this logocentrism, this faith in the sacred word that is important. It's fascinating how we could link history with the literature, especially in Russia, with uh, you know, starting with Pushkin and moving on all the way through Akhmatova, Bunin, and you know, Solzhenitsyn and all of those people, and how when Solzhenitsyn criticized the Soviet Union, how he was vilified by them as somehow you know not staying in that uh, context of the greatness of the Soviet Union at the time. And then anybody, Boonin, who also criticized, and some of the others, uh, Pasternak, you know, they would, uh, you know, go under a lot of pressure to change. But we also had this with Pushkin and the censorship of Nicholas I, which we covered in one of our episodes, and how uh, Dostoevsky almost lost his life for some of his comments and, you know, behavior. So they tried to also put it into that channel, you might say to keep it within these borders of what the leaders at the time believed was the correct greatness of Russia. So everybody had to kind of fit in there and it carried on to the Soviet Union and it carries on to this day under Putin is what you can and cannot say what you can and cannot write. Uh, so your book is, you know, the Russian literature, became, how Russian literature became great is such a deep meaning historically as well as literary. And I just urge my listeners to uh, go to Cornell University Press. We will have a link on our uh, podcast episode page so that people can go directly to the book. And, and I really highly recommend that they do so. So I want to really thank you again for coming on to the podcast and sharing with us your thoughts and uh, ideas about the book and what you studied and how you're presenting it to the rest of the world. So thank you so much, Ralph. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. But thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we begin to cover the people's perspectives of the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War. Until then, Dasidanya, Espasiba Zavinya Manya. <laughs>